0: Welcome to another St. Mark's Podcast. We're here at the Frontiers meeting in London uh, 2019 and we're doing what we've uh, called Frontiers Corridor Chats with our experts who've been presenting here uh, this week and today I'm very delighted to say that I've got Dr. Anna Wilson with me a consultant gastroenterologist from St. Mark's who has a many interests but one of her most interesting areas of study and, and clinical research is the problem of low anterior resection syndrome after anterior resection for, for rectal cancer. Well welcome Anna.
1: Thank you Peter.
0: And um, what I'd like to ask first of all what made you get interested in this because it's a sort of surgical topic but it's Great that we've got a gastroenterologist now who's taking an interest.
1: Yeah, so when I started as a consultant, actually, at St. Mark's, our dean at the time, Professor Sue Clark, had decided that a new appointee should have an interest in consequences of cancer treatment. So, in fact, actually, although I look after patients with lower anterior resection syndrome, and we were talking about them today. I also look after lots of patients who have various gastrointestinal symptoms after their cancer treatment. I do a session at the Royal Marsden and I've taken some of the work from Jarvis and drave in terms of looking after patients with pelvic who've had pelvic radiotherapy and they have side effects and consequences. Um, so Lars, is just really one of the things I do in terms of managing patients with consequences of cancer treatment.
0: Well, that's very interesting to hear that. And- uh, what have you found with lars? i mean is it, it surprised you how how uh, how widespread it is after a resection and how difficult it can be for many of the patients?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's um it we underestimate how frequent it is. um some of our data shows that I presented earlier this morning that at ten years, fifty percent of patients will still describe having major Lars symptoms now those symptoms don't necessarily have a direct impact on quality of life at that stage because lots of patients learn how to adapt and how to deal with their symptoms. But there are certain things that we can do to improve the quality of life in those patients. Certainly the LARS score, when it was developed, very closely correlated with quality of life. So we know the patients who have major LARS score symptoms are more likely to have worse quality of life that has significant impact on their day-to-day living. So I think one of the things that is also challenging is that very heterogeneous group of patients with very different symptoms.
0: Under the umbrella of LARS, are we including urinary and sexual dysfunction as well, is that all part of the same umbrella or are we really sticking with bowel function?
1: Yeah I think again when we look at the LARS as the tool it's been specifically designed just to look at bowel function but of course we know the bowel function is not the only thing that contributes to the overall quality of life and in fact one of our fellows at the moment is looking at direct effects on quality of life scores. Um, We don't as yet concentrate much on sexual or urinary function. So LARS really just encompasses the bowel function after surgery, which as you quite rightly point out, may not be the only critical aspect of patient's quality of life.
0: Now, often a, a low anterior section or an ultra-low anterior section or now a, 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 ta, a, a transanal. TME, may be done in order to avoid a colostomy. Uh, And that was always, if you like, the surgeon's uh, measuring device. You didn't have a colostomy. It must be better than having a colostomy. But that's not really turned out always to be the case, is it?
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. And I presented some data, some really interesting data from Canada today about looking at patients who've been consented. And we know that they've met their physicians and associate specialists five times before they actually came to surgery. And we know that there's been documentation of both sexual and bowel dysfunction discussed beforehand, but actually patients' recall of those discussions is really quite poor. And that is possibly, you know, there are many factors for that. It may be that patients are preoccupied with cancer and therefore they can just recall survival rates. And that's the only thing that at that stage they can cope with. But it may be also the emphasis that we are playing in placing in consultations with the patients that we are just interested in survival and getting rid of the cancer, and we're not placing enough emphasis on other functional aspects. I think the the important thing is to try and somehow try and present the patients this data beforehand, and try and involve them in a joint decision making. So it's not the surgeon making decision, but the patients are empowered, given pros and cons of various different options in order to be able to make an informed consent as much as that's possible. So in this particular study, none of the 30 patients that were interviewed, and they were interviewed on their first post-operative visit to minimise recall bias, none of them remembered being offered APR as an alternative to low sphincter-preserving surgery. So I think it is our due to try and cancel the patients and really objectively provide them with the risk and benefits so they can weigh this up a bit more.
0: And uh, presumably, with all the patients you've got with this problem, there must be some I don't know what proportion who you look back at with them and they would perhaps rather have had a colostomy. I mean, can you give a percentage of what you think that that proportion would be?
1: Yeah, so th- there is very little data to show how many patients actually go on and have their colostomy re- reversed. And lots of expert opinions, and there are lots of editorials and expert opinions, will say that they have very few patients who choose to have stoma. Back, I've actually, in the last year, had two patients who, for various reasons, we just could not get their quality of life back to normal. One of them, surprisingly, a relatively young woman in her late 30s, whose aim was to go camping with her family. And her symptoms we just could not get under control, such that she should be able to do what was incredibly important to her. And she went off and had a deep functioning colostomy and it's completely changed her life. So I think it's really difficult. We don't know exactly how many patients are so desperate. Certainly, of course, the patients I see are slightly sort of range tertiary patients I have a couple of patients who got lawsuits against their original surgeons because they claimed that they were not informed of the risks and benefits and of course as you are only too aware our consent process is nothing like the Canadian process that's described where every letter lists every single complication
0: and, and, and even that wasn't perfect from the old description even, even
1: that wasn't perfect but of course medical illegally those poor surgeons have very little leg to stand on because there is no documentation of any discussion having taken place no.
0: Well let's go on to the syndrome itself. Um, This morning in the very good session that we had you were saying the first thing you often do is to uh, investigate them to make sure they haven't got a recurrence to make sure they haven't got any proximal colitis etc etc. When you've done all that uh, you're left with the syndrome would you like to just tell us something about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a Lars is a very heterogeneous syndrome and the patients present with very different symptoms. So even after you've excluded other underlying pathology and you're left with this group of patients who have Lars syndrome, they tend to have different symptoms. And I think it's depending on those symptoms that you will tailor your management. So, for example, I, I talked briefly this morning about patients who have colonic dysmotility and the, the range of treatments they use with those patients. So often I will try using bulking agents Interestingly, unlike in pelvic radiotherapy, where things like normal and fibregel tend to do reasonably well, for whatever reason, psyllium husk tends to be a lot better tolerated in these patients. Again, we have no knowledge. This is very poor evidence. This is just simply anecdotal practice data. Um, the, in terms of trying to decrease the migrating motor complexes, i.e. what you're trying to do, slow down the bowel, um, I use two things. I tend to use quite a lot of loperamide. And because some people are incredibly sensitive to even small dose of loperamide and then they get into this terrible cycle of constipation and they're not willing to use it, I tend to use loperamide liquid and you can titrate that to 0.5 milligrams, which is a quarter of a tablet. And essentially, so you can still be giving someone regular loperamide 30 minutes before eating three times a day and you're still giving them a lower dose than a single 2 milligram tablet would give them. Patients who have quite prominent gastrocolic reflux and also patients who have nocturnal symptoms and nocturnal defecation, which of course contribute to increasing sensation of fatigue, hopelessness in these patients, I tend to use tricyclic antidepressants in a very low dose. I always explain to the patients in this dose, these drugs don't have any antidepressant side effects. We are purely using them as neuropathic agents, akin to what you would use them in a chronic back pain, any chronic pain syndromes really, we use them for phantom limb pain, also interesting we've got phantom rectum pain, but they tend to work by sort of slightly settling the impulses of the gut and breaking down that gut brain cycle and they work tremendously well in some patients.
0: So the main symptom that they might complain of is—is is it urgency? Is it incontinence? Is it unable to keep wind in? What's the what's the commonest?
1: So again, patients vary depending on the etiology. So. Um Patients, Some patients complain of incontinence, and those patients are more likely to have some sort of damage to their anal sphincter, be it related to radiotherapy, be it related to the uh, stapler and sort of just physical damage, which is thought to, be, to occur in up to 20% of patients. However, one of the other problems is that what patients lose, particularly if they've had a radiotherapy, is they lose their anal sensation of being able to discriminate between what is flatus and between what is solid stool. What patients will often actually complain, most frequently, the patients that are referred to me complain about inability to stop opening their bowel once they start opening it. So they don't describe true diarrhea. They don't describe watery loose stool. And I think in my talk this morning, I try to emphasize how important it is to get exact symptoms right because people say they've got diarrhea when they mean all sorts of varied things, including change in bowel habit, including steatoria. These patients typically describe passing pencil-like, thick, pasty stools, but actually once they start opening the bowels are being unable to stop opening them. So they go to the toilet, they wipe themselves, they haven't even left the bathroom, they're back on the toilet again, and this is associated with smear marks on the pants, etc. So that is by far the commonest presentation. Of course, there will be other people who will have slightly more urgency and other people whom wind will bother more than others. But again, different patients are, have different perceptions and different things that will tend to bother them and affect them.
0: So you've investigated them, you've, tried the, you've done the low paramide, and you've given maybe some tricyclic antidepressant uh, for the reasons you've said. What, what are you going to do then if they're still in trouble?
1: It's sort of, I guess, in terms of investigations, the way we've, we t- I tailored investigations, I don't tend to investigate to everyone blanket to, for exactly the same thing. It's very much tailored. So the patients who you feel have got evacuatory disorder, people who describe their straining, they, they feel like they have tempted their bowel, but they can't tempt it. They will often go down the rule of having defecating proctograms, anorectal physiology, and probably earlier by a feedback intervention. Um, because we have found that that works in patients significantly. In those patients who don't respond to the initial measures that we tried off, uh, we are about to start recruiting into, on ondansetron trials. So this is particularly for patients who've got urgency and frequency of defecation. We know that there's a hyper excitation of 5H3 agonists in the gastrointestinal tract. There is some early data from Japan about ramocetron, which is an anti-H3 antagonist, which is not licensed in the UK, which has showed really interesting results in terms of decreasing urgency of defecation and decreasing frequency of defecation. So ondansetron, which is licensed in the UK, has been found to be helpful in patients with diarrhea-predominant IBS. We're going to start recruiting patients with low anterior section syndrome and see whether we can improve some of those symptoms in that way. But again, it really depends what the driving symptoms is. Is it colonic dysmotility that's driving patient symptoms or is it evacuatory disorder? And then this these two makes it sort of easier to manage them.
0: So dancitron looks like it may be helpful in the future. I mean, you mentioned biofeedback, and biofeedback training can do quite a bit with these patients in the right circumstances?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's very difficult to measure what it is in biofeedback that's making symptoms. So we do have a bit of data to show that anorectal function improves, but I suspect a degree of biofeedback help, in a way that it helps, is the fact they're seeing the same therapist for prolonged period of time, and they're learning coping mechanisms and how to cope with the mechanisms that they have. But we've also seen that if we send patients for biofeedback before they close their stoma, they tend to have a better outcome afterwards. In addition, if they have some biofeedback, and one of our biofeedback nurses used to do sort of porridge enemas to try and see how much they can hold. If the patients have really poor function before reversal, we try and work really hard to try and improve their pelvic floor function before they're reversed. An interesting, ileostomy, of course, we've talked about and I've sort of touched on it briefly, doubles your risk of getting major low anterior section syndrome. Now, of course, that might be confounded by the fact that you're doing very deep pelvic uh, dissections and those are the patients that get ileostomy. Um, but actually, I've just spoken to Roel Humps today about the fact that they don't do stoma in their patients anymore. They don't do covering stoma. So it'd be really interesting to see what happens there. it very able. nice
0: to study uh, his patients. We were talking to him earlier and he was, and you made the point this morning that uh, the, not, not only is it the fact that uh, these patients often have defunctioning ileostomies but the length of time they may have been defunctioned yeah. for even without a leak uh, may have an effect because I think you mentioned this morning that, that these uh, these neorectums uh, may actually become a bit fibrotic and lose muscle power.
1: Absolutely and one of our fellows um, has actually been looking into that into distally feeding patients with diverting ileostomies to try and see if we can inject a mixture of probiotic that we not only improve the gut health but improving gut microbiome but also give the the you know the pelvic floor the anal sphincter something to work against. We while they function. We,
0: we know that's important in the small bowel when, it, when it needs to be defunctioned higher up. Um, now what about going on to things like enemas, suppositories, Q4 um, equipment do they have to do this sometimes?
1: Yes yeah, so sometimes they do and often patients have quite a lot of clustering so those patients who feel like they can't open their bowels or, or the moment when they start opening their bowels that they can't stop they tend to respond reasonably well to enemas so they you can either give them phosphate enemas which interestingly a few of them actually feel like they have a really quiet they feel that the evacuation then is so vigorous that they feel quite unwell afterwards so they tend to go on by their self-choice onto water irrigation because they tend to prefer that often some of these patients do develop a degree of anismus, which is then really difficult to treat and one of our biofeedback therapists actually just uses pediatric proctoscopes which patients self-insert, that just try and get the muscles used to working against something, just sort of trying to do almost at home by feedback, as it were. But it really, it's really only useful in patients with clustering symptoms and rather than patients who have neorectal irritability, that's less helpful.
0: So they, they don't... Not unlike the old days when we had long S pouches in a distal segment, it's not a question of the the the, the knee rectum not emptying. Most of the time, it's emptying too 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 frequently and too often. It's it, it's not obstructed.
1: Yeah. So that's interesting. So from the defecating proctogram studies that we've done, most of the time they they, they can't tolerate a huge amount of paste, barium paste, when you put inside. So they the, you know. So they, quite clearly, there is reduced near rectal reservoir capacity. But actually, when you look at the emptying, they do empty reasonably well. What I do wonder what happens sometimes, though, and of course, and you don't capture this necessarily in going higher up, is where the proximal slightly drops down and next or a slight valve, which you wouldn't get in, evacu- in the evacuating proctogram. You wouldn't be able to get a result of that. But I do wonder whether sometimes functionally, as the patients sit up straight to go to the toilet, your nice end-to-end anastomosis isn't quite so straight nice end-to-end anastomosis. Is.
0: talking about the technique for a moment there we used to do more colo pouches than we do now as far as i know mm. uh and uh we we were very excited about that and then we found it didn't really make yes. very much difference are you have you noticed any difference between the techniques that that people are using
1: no, not really and, I, and i've actually you know i can't remember having seen a patient recently with coloanal but who's had anal parts so i think people it's really sort of dropped off the radio because you're quite right people have not shown they makes any difference
0: Okay so where are we going? We're nearly coming to the end of this uh, podcast. It's great that you're doing this work because I think there's so much research to be done and then you've got the bladder and the sexual stuff to add on sooner or later. I know we've got colleagues at St Mark's who are now going to collaborate with us on that and so that's very exciting because although we've known about all this for Mm. 40 years we haven't really got very far with it. Um, What's new in, in your research on this subject? Fine. I think
1: one of, one of the things that's really interesting is actually we're we, you know talking about how do patients cope with the symptoms so we are unlikely to be able to get rid of the symptoms completely that is unrealistic expectation and again some of the nice data again uh, showing that you know if you score normal people with a large questionnaire after 20% of women over the age of 50 will score as having had a major large score so you know people do have bowel dysfunction I think what's really important is sort of put it in the context and counsel patients appropriately and I think this. quite a lot of work to be done about when do you do that cancer learning intervention and who does it? Because actually the surgeon might not be the best to do it because the surgeon's main aim will be to remove the cancer mm-hmm. and heal the cancer. Gastroenterologist may not be the right person to mm-hmm. do it. In fact, it might not be the medical profession. Maybe we need some auxiliary, maybe we need physiotherapists, maybe we need specialist nurses, nurses yeah. a bit like the pouch nurses to really specially mm-hmm. counsel the patients in terms of expectations. And I think if, you, if we manage to lower expectations somewhat, then we can build in afterwards coping mechanisms, coping strategies, it's also trying to identify a bit what Polars does in terms of identifying who is going to develop Bed Lard Syndromes. Us what Poli's so is. Poli is a tool that was developed and validated. Nick Battersby is the first author from Pelican on Pelican website. It tries to predict the risk of bowel dysfunction uh, before the surgery and inputs various variables, so you know gender, age, the height of the tumour, radiotherapy, and it gives you a little figure of how likely you are to develop low anterior resection score. So it and may it, be. This is
0: one of the conditions that women do worse than women men. Women do worse, mostly. In rectal cancer, it's the other way around.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, one of the things that you might want to think about is if you have an elderly lady with a very, very low tumor um, who's going to have to have radiotherapy beforehand, who's already got. Function or had a function before rectal cancer diagnosis, which wasn't brilliant, maybe we shouldn't be offering those patients the surgery and we should be strongly advising the other way because they are, we know they are likely to have significant functional impact afterwards. But I think, I strongly suspect it's not going to be just about those variables identified in polars, which are related to uh, objective things. I think it's also going to be something about the inner grittiness, people's ability to cope with diversity afterwards. Because we all know the patients, there are certain patients who cope with the symptoms and I have a certain patients who have very mild life scores but actually completely debilitated by their condition so it's sort of I think there's quite a lot of work in sort of predicting we want to predict this because then we want to cancel those patients really appropriately afterwards and patients who are at a very high risk we want to be saying hang on a minute is this the right operation for you because although you may be cancer free you will never be able to leave your house because of the bowels
0: this is an awful lot for a patient to take in when they're worried about the cancer and the survival and the operation uh, as well at that time Anyway, it's been a fascinating uh, 20 minutes talking about it. I hope that's helped some of our listeners understand it more and uh, maybe start developing an interest in what is a difficult problem. Um, And uh, thank you very much for joining me, Dr. Anna Wilson. It's been a pleasure.
1: Pleasure. Thank you very much.